Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, we all say we'd like to read, see, and hear more upbeat stories, right? But it turns out we're actually drawn to bad news. Called a negativity bias, we're hardwired that way. But if you like good news, there is hope for you too. President Joe Biden was the center of attention in Ottawa today in town with First Lady Jill Biden for a 27-hour visit. There was talk of the bilateral relationship, announcements on irregular migration, Haiti, and more. The president even threw in a lease joke for good measure. We stick handle through all of it. New population stats out this week reveal some very interesting stuff. Canada's population grew by more than a million people in 2022 for the first time ever. We look at what's driving the jump and the benefits and challenges it brings with it. And go west. The most popular destination for Canadians moving to a different province is by far Alberta. The usual reasons still apply, jobs, a healthy economy. But there's a new factor at play, too, that we'll look into. People fleeing unaffordability in places such as Toronto and Vancouver. Let's talk about population growth uh, for the first half hour here, because it's been a remarkable year for that in this country. We hit a mark never before seen. We found out this week that the country's population increased by more than a million people for the first time in history in 2022. Total population grew by 1.05 million to nearly 40 million people in this country now, 39.57. About 96% of that rise was due to international migration. We retain our position as the fastest growing G7 country. And of course, uh, we're courting more immigration. We've set some ambitious targets coming up, 465,000 new permanent residents this year. By 2025, 500,000 newcomers. Here's uh, Immigration Minister Sean Fraser back in November explaining. Canada needs more people. Canadians understand the need to continue to grow our population if we're going to meet the needs of the labour force, if we're going to rebalance a uh, worrying demographic trend, and if we're going to continue to reunite families and to do right by the world and make good in our commitments to support some of the world's most vulnerable. Uh, My view is that Canada is uniquely positioned in the world uh, to use immigration to achieve these outcomes. You know, immigration in Canada is not just something that we do. It's, it's who we are. It's, it's who we've always been. Yeah, and, and it's working. So what's driving that growth? What are the benefits? What are the challenges? Joining me now is Kate Choi. She's an associate professor in sociology and director of the Center for Research on Social Inequality at Western University. Uh, Kate, thank you. Good evening, Ben. So that's, I mean, I wasn't shocked because we knew that numbers were up, but that's a big number for this country. I mean, we're only, we were only 38 million to start. Now we're up at 39. Yes, you're absolutely right. It's a record growth for Canada and it represented 2.7% of growth relative to the total population. This rate of growth, the last time we saw something similar in terms of the rate was in 1957. And that was after the Hungarian Revolution and right. it's hardly fueled by the post-war baby boom. Right, of course. So what is driving it? I mean, I know almost all of it is international migrations, people coming from abroad. But I was wondering, are the people already here? Are these, are these students graduating to permanent resident visas or is this or permanent resident status rather? Or are we just bringing in a lot more people? That is an excellent question. So 42% of the immigrants that are coming are actually permanent residents that are coming into the country. And 58% of individuals are non-permanent migrants who are uh, international students, people who have a work permit and so forth. And something that is unique about the non-permanent migrant population right now is that about a quarter of them are those individuals who are fleeing the Ukraine due to the war and right. have come to Canada under the emergency travel authorization. Yeah, that was that was I was that was my next question. We've seen some specific circumstances this year around uh, the welcoming of people specifically from Ukraine. Uh, how big an impact has that had? You just mentioned it. It's uh, about a hundred and fifty thousand or so uh, are uh, Ukrainian uh, individuals who are arriving here as non-permanent migrants. Yeah, I mean, the benefits of this are pretty clear. I mean, I think Sean Fraser was describing them there. First of all, Canada is seen as a sanctuary for those fleeing uh, other parts, you know, conflict in other parts of the world. We accepted many Syrian refugees. We accepted many Ukrainians, Afghans. Um, But there is a benefit here. I mean, Canada isn't, uh, as Sean Fraser mentioned, uh, there is there is a, a reason for all this trying to bring people trying to bring people here. 
That is a wonderful question. And indeed, um, the influx of international migrants has both a short-term as well as a long-term benefit to the Canadian economy. So if we think about the short-term benefit, uh, we know that um, right now a lot of different businesses are actually experiencing a labor shortage. And in fact, a really interesting study from Statistics Canada found that in the first quarter of 2022, 37% of business owners reported that they were concerned about finding a skilled worker. And as a result, the influx of international migrants can really help mitigate some of the effects of labor shortages. If we think about the long term, it will help alleviate some of the um, issues that emerge due to Canada's population aging. We know that the dependency ratio, which is the sum of elderly individuals and children divided by the working individuals, has been steadily increasing since 2007. And as a result, we have two workers supporting a dependent. We also know that the Canada's working population is nearing a, a large share of them are nearing retirement. And finally, we know that total fertility rates are low, well be- below replacement at 1.4. So over the long run, the influx of international migrants who often tend to be of prime working ages can really help with Canada's population, population aging problems. Yeah, I was one of the statistics I saw that I found very interesting was that at a growth rate of 2.7%, which is remarkable considering the the numbers you were just quoting, uh, you know, about fertility rates and so on within the country, that our population could double in 26 years, which is which seems remarkable considering all the challenges you just pointed out with population growth internally. Yes. And that has to do with the sheer uh, entry of international migrants themselves. But also, once international migrants come into Canada, they tend to be of prime working ages, which also happens to coincide and are also the prime ages where people build a family, get married, have children, and so forth. And all of these things together contribute to the rapid population rate, which will double in 26 years. We're talking a remarkable number that came out this week. More than a million people came to this country last year in 2022 for the first time in Canadian history, bumping up our population to 39.5 million people. And there's more to come, of course, recording more immigration to Canada. And we've talked about all the benefits and why it's happening. Let's talk a bit about some of the challenges. Kate Choi is with us. She's director of the Center for Research on Social Inequality at Western University. Uh, Kate, I guess... It comes. There's challenges too. I mean, we've interviewed people who've come from Ukraine, for instance, to Canada, and they're finding it tough with inflation, finding a place to live, getting their credentials recognized. Like arriving here is just part part of the whole scenario. Settling here can sometimes be tougher. Yes, that is a wonderful point. And even before the rapid rise in um, in population. It, Canada was already experiencing housing affordability issues. So over the past 20 years, housing prices, in fact, had increased at double the rate of income growth. And and as a result of the rapid growth in population, it is possible that housing affordability will erode even further if adequate investments and policies are not implemented to direct resources to replenish the housing supply. Yeah, because one could imagine if that were to happen, that could impact future immigration, right? If, if people are looking for a place to go, um, un- you know, lack of affordability will be one of the things they take into consideration. Yes, indeed. Having said that, we uh, are kind of thinking about the benefits and costs of international migration in a dichotomous fashion. But one thing to note is within the million immigrant uh, international migrants who are coming into Canada, a lot of them will be economic migrants. There will be a lot of high skilled workers as well as tradespeople. And if we can, as you mentioned earlier, if we can get their foreign credentials Uh, rigorously assessed, but in an efficient manner over a short period of time, we can in turn use some of their talents so that we can create more housing and they can contribute towards the 
housing uh, supply replenishment that uh, Canada is seeking to undertake under the National Housing uh, Act. And in fact, if we look, go back to the survey of uh, business owners, construction is in fact one of the areas where there were the largest labor shortages. Right. I was reading your CV, Kate, and of course you studied in the U.S. You went to some really great schools, UCLA, Princeton. I suppose you could have stayed, but you decided to come here too. So what was it about Canada that appealed to you? And I guess that's kind of the big story, isn't it? I mean, you're the kind of a professional that, that everyone's hoping to attract along with many others. So one of the things that I found uh, really interesting was the fact that Canada has a very diverse uh, in international population, it, right. um, and it, it has a lot of uh, population growth. And as a social demographer who studies migration, fertility patterns, and health, it was something that was uh, extreme. It was a setting that was extremely attractive for me. It, it was also the case that a lot of the higher education. Uh, institutions like Western and other places, there's a lot of really interesting, rigorous and innovative research that is ongoing. So that was partly one of the reasons why I decided to migrate uh, from the United States into Canada. Right. So you came here for exactly what we're talking about tonight. That's fascinating. Oh, thank thank you. (laughs) Yeah. Um, when you look to the future, I mean, one of the things that's been interesting about the experience so far in Canada, and I lived in Europe for a while, I mean, I lived in Britain for a while, was that, you know, immigration, migration can be a very contentious issue in some places. Um, and yet in Canada, we seem to have had a, a dialogue across the country where that hasn't been the case. And I'm wondering, knowing what you know, and having been in the US, why you think that is? I think there are um, multiple different reasons. In general, uh, if we look at the Gallup uh, migrant acceptance uh, polls, Canada is one of the places that ranks the highest in the world in terms of their acceptance of migrants. And that has partly to do with the fact that there's a really big emphasis on multiculturalism and respect for diverse diversity and so forth. It's also an economic issue as well. Um, Canada, uh, as the Minister Fraser indicated in his speech, uh, has a lot of labor shortages and needs a lot of international migrants to fill these labor shortages. And filling these labor shortages is essential in order for the economic prosperity in Canada as well as the post-COVID-19 uh, recovery of the Canadian economy. So those will probably be the two broad reasons why Canadians have such favorable attitudes about international migration. Well, Kate, uh, I'm glad you're here to study it all and share it with us. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure being on your show. Go West. Isn't that what we were saying? Well, Alberta has been trying to covet people to come out West. Here's a taste. Hi, I'm Alicia. I live in Calgary, Alberta. I moved here from Toronto about three years ago. So I lived in Toronto for about three years. At that point, we were like, oh, we should buy a house here. And, you know, the cost of housing in Toronto is astronomical. We had a realtor help us with our rental search, and our max budget was never big enough. Even when we were renting, never mind buying. I was really excited to move to Calgary. Now I couldn't imagine living anywhere else. Ah. Alberta is Calling is what the campaign was called. That was the first iteration of it. It was launched last summer, and it focused on workers from Toronto and Vancouver. Well, guess what? There's a new one coming, another $5 million campaign. This one will target workers from northern and southwestern Ontario and the Maritimes. Um, There you have it. So the ads are continuing They might need the ads, though, because it turns out people are going to Alberta no matter what. Maybe it's because of the ads. Who knows? But it turns out lots of people are coming from Alberta and not just from Toronto and Vancouver. So chances are they probably didn't hear those ads. Alberta saw the highest net interprovincial migration of any Canadian province at the end of 2022. Um, And that, as we reported in the last half hour, we were talking about Canada's record population growth of more than a million people last year. Now, of course, Alberta is getting its fair share of international arrivals for sure. But where it really outpaces everyone else is people relocating from other provinces. Get this. 
Alberta saw a net growth of more than 11,000 interprovincial migrants in the fourth quarter of 2022. 11,000. Um, that's, you know, that may not, might not sound like a huge number, but when it comes to those, the give and take of, of provincial migration, that is huge. 20,000 people moved in, 9,000 left, 20,500 really. The closest province or territory with a net increase was Nova Scotia with 1,025. So Alberta by a long shot. The provinces that saw the most people leave, Ontario and B.C., followed by Alberta, oddly enough. So lots of people leaving Alberta, but even more people coming in. So it gives you an idea of why, uh, of, of where that number is coming from. Why? Well, you can imagine the usual reasons when the economy is doing well and energy prices are up, people move in from other parts of the country, you know, uh, people are lured there by the economy and jobs and so on. But there's some other factors too out there that might be driving people out of certain places and making Alberta look attractive if you're looking for somewhere else to go. And that's a little bit different than what we've seen historically. Now, one of those people who made the move from Toronto to Calgary in the not-so-distant past is Mei Chow. And as a real estate agent, she also deals with a lot of newcomers who've just made the same decision. And she joins me now. Thank you so much. Hi, how are you? I'm well. Tell me about your move. I mean, you're, you were in Toronto back in 2015. Uh, what made you sort of decide to pack your bags and, and head west? <laughs> well, originally I decided, as a, you know what? I wasn't seeing my life progress as much as I wanted it to in Toronto. I was working all the time and I was not, I was still staying in the same spot and I had no more time to give to work. So I was like, there has to be a better way so I can have a work-life balance and I can still see my life progress and have savings, get some properties or a property. Um, And really make a good foundation for when I wanted to start a family. And I just couldn't see that in the near future or future really at all when I was in Toronto, <laughs> to be honest. Yeah, I mean, I lived there. I mean, uh, at the time, I mean, I lived there in the early part of, the, of uh, you know, back in 2001 to 2004. And, and even then it was it was expensive, but it's gotten much more expensive since I was, uh, since mm-hmm. I lived there. And even then it seemed pretty challenging. Were you, were you far out or were you downtown or... I was a mix. So I was born and raised, I was born in Toronto, raised in Aurora. And then I spent all of my late teens and early 20s working in the film industry and living downtown Toronto. So I was kind of a mix. I lived in Aurora, Orangeville and downtown and was just trying to make, how about if I lived further out? Would it be more doable? But then you're spending two hours in traffic. So it's like, what, what can you do? Yeah, it's it's the dilemma, right? I mean, there's so much in Toronto, especially if you're in something like the film industry, there's so much there, but but you you know, you have to deal with the commutes or the little apartments and so you decide to pack up. Why did you choose Cal why did you choose Alberta and where did you wind up? Well, I actually chose Vancouver. I lived in Vancouver for a bit. And right. I chose Vancouver because when you're from Toronto, you kinda of look at it like those are the two options. It's Toronto or it's Vancouver. And so I went to Vancouver. And I was finding the same issues. And then it was like, there has to be, again, a better way. And I went to Calgary to visit a friend. And it all just happened really organically. I met another film producer in line at Starbucks. We got to talking and I realized that the film industry was big here. So I was like, you know what, I'll stay for a few months, see how it works out. And seven years later... I'm still here. <laughs> wow. So you did both. You, be, you did Toronto and Vancouver, both the places that the Alberta government targeted first with those ads because they knew. Exactly. They knew Toronto and Vancouver had similar issues, expensive housing, tough to get around and so on. Um, how was it? So you pack up your stuff and you settle, settle in, uh, it's Calgary, right? So how was it for the first, uh, for the first little bit? What was, what was good and, and what was harder to get used to? You know what? I would say almost right away, I started noticing the good. I was able to very quickly start working. I never found, I mean, like I told you, I met a film producer right away. I went right in to start working, and I really didn't feel too much of the moving gap. Because I worked right away, I was making instantly more than I was spending. Rent was so cheap at the time. Now I'm an owner, but at the time I was renting, rent was cheap. I was able to live really close to downtown, so my commute was very minimal. And then there wasn't really tra- – like, I, there wasn't too much of a negative at all other than being far away from family. And 
in that seven years, a majority of my family has actually come over to Calgary as well. Really? So you, you blazed a trail out west? Everyone made fun of me at the start, and then they would start visiting me. And it's funny, everyone that always criticized Alberta when I was back in Toronto or even Vancouver, I've now come to realize had never been there, lived there, and didn't really know it. It was just kind of things that we heard. And then when I got here and when my family started coming here, we realized that it was completely different. And now everyone followed me. (laughs) (laughs) And and there was nothing like even, I mean, you know, I guess Toronto's winters are are not great. I mean, they're okay. They're a bit gray. Um, But what even like the weather and all that stuff, you you found it easy to adapt to? No problem at all? So you know what? I always tell people this because people always ask me about the weather. I actually find Calgary weather way more tolerable than Toronto and even Vancouver because I'm someone that in the seasons, as it starts getting gray and gloomy, I start feeling my mood changing. I don't want to get out. In Toronto, it's very wet and the cold. It feels colder than Calgary does, and so yeah. it's very wet and gray and dark. Whereas Calgary, it could read as though it's colder, but because it's so sunny and the cold is dry, it doesn't feel nearly as cold. And you don't have all the slushy and feeling like cold down to your bones like you do in Toronto. Yeah, and then there was something about, raining, so. uh, May Chow is with us. We're talking about uh, internal migration in Canada. Alberta, you know, they've had these ads on, and I'm in sort of in BC, so I've heard them. And uh, they targeted Toronto. Now they're targeting southwestern Ontario, northern Ontario, and the Maritimes. And they're essentially attracting people, getting people to come to Alberta. And they have these sort of first-person stories about it being affordable and buying a house and how much further your money goes and so forth. And either it's, you know, maybe the ads have had something to do with it, but... They've had huge interprovincial migration of late, far more than anybody else, plus 11,000 in 2022, uh, in late 2022, which was far broader, far bigger than any other province in the country. So we're talking about why that is. Mei Chow is telling us she moved from Toronto to Vancouver, then to Calgary uh, about seven, eight years ago, and is still there doing well and is now uh, in real estate. So you must see all the people following in your footsteps who've been, who are coming out there. Uh, or are you? It's wild. Yeah, it's crazy. So I initially started just talking on social media about my personal experience. And I had no idea that this government ad was about to roll out or the the campaign. And I was just talking about my story because people would ask me all the time. And I would have people reach out to me that knew me personally now that I'm in real estate. And people started engaging so much with it. And now I would say 80% of my clients are actually from different provinces, usually Ontario or BC, a few from Quebec. Wow, that's a lot of people. What Do they all tell similar stories or is it right across the map what brings them out? It's very similar, but I think COVID actually played a big role in it. And I don't oh, think a lot of people are thinking about that. But I think since people started working online and realizing that they could work remotely, they started expanding their minds that, you know what, I can work remotely, potentially buy a property somewhere else, and still maybe even keep the job that I was at. And I'm finding so many of my clients are in that position, where since COVID, they've been working remotely, and then they started thinking of, I don't need to be in this Toronto apartment. I can go to Alberta or somewhere else, have a house with an office, work remotely, keep my job. And that's been really common for people. Um, and uh, something that I hear all the time with my clients, at least. Yeah, I mean, you said, I mean, clearly you have homes to sell too. I know people leave, and it's funny that the third highest province for people leaving was also Alberta. So there's just a lot of movement going on. Um, what, in your experience, why do people go? Is our, you know, I see lots of Albertans come out. I'm in on Vancouver Island. Lots of Albertans come here to set, to retire, essentially. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I think that maybe. Maybe they've saved up enough money and they can go to Toronto or Vancouver <laughs> <to> now. Vancouver. <laughs> Maybe yeah. that's why. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I mean, any um, when any any so no downsides at all for you. It's all it's all worked out really well. And I, I suppose there's always things you miss about the place you grew up a little bit, but pretty much you've been able yeah. to replace a lot of it. I've been able to replace so much of it. I mean, I have my family. So much of my family's out here now. So it's been. The one thing that I would say has been hard for me is leaving Ontario cottage country. I have a cottage in Ontario, 
So I love the cottage country in Ontario that can't really be replaced out here, but we have the Rocky Mountains. So it's like, it's whatever I've missed, I've been able to very easily replace since living out here. And in terms of the influx of people, do you think that may change some of the real estate equation at some point? Or is everything still, I mean, prices are went up everywhere. They dropped a bit more in those places that were really expensive, like Vancouver and Toronto, but not downtown. Um, do you think this will have any impact on real estate? Will it become less attractive at some point, I guess, is what I'm getting at. I think inevitably the prices will continue to rise. Hopefully not a spike, maybe gradual. I mean, they will continue to rise, but um, hopefully it stays at a point where it's still reasonable. So far, I've seen the prices rise a little bit, but they've stayed very manageable. It's nothing crazy. Um, So hopefully it stays that way. And even the tax and things, the living costs are staying relatively reasonable. So um, hopefully it stays that way. I know it's important to people here that it does stay that way. You can only control so much with people coming over here, but right. fingers crossed. Were you a sports fan back in Toronto growing up at all? Oh, I mean, I'm like one of those sports fans that I'm a fan if I'm at the game. And then as right. soon as I leave the game, I forget about it. <laughs> yeah, because Joe Biden was in Ottawa today talking about it, and he made a joke about not liking the Leafs. So I'm just wondering if you had to change sports allegiances when you got out to Calgary. <laughs> I've heard so much of that. Since coming out here, when people find out I'm from Toronto, I get so many comments about the Leafs. It really? is like people have such a personal hate against the Leafs, and I don't get it. And they, oh, well, I guess that's one thing. One of them. Oh, really? So I guess you have yes. to warn Tor- Torontonians when they get out there just to uh, to, to lay low if if they're fans. No, lay low. Don't tell people, or else the first thing they say all the time. <laughs> even even your husband. <laughs> even my husband is always a McDavid versus Matt versus Matthews. I mean, I don't wow. care, but people here really care. <laughs> yeah, it's one, it's one of those Canadian things. If you grow up in Toronto, you only really notice when you leave. May Chow, thank you so much for filling us in. Congratulations on the move working out, uh, yeah, in many, in many ways. Awesome. Thanks so much, Ben. Bonjour, Canada. Yeah, bonjour, Canada. Joe Biden uh, talked about how he had taken French in, in school, which, which you know, for Joe is, is a while back. And, yeah, that was as good as he could. That's the best he had. That's what he said today. Bonjour, Canada. He was in Ottawa today for a 27-hour visit. I, I suspect it's done. I haven't seen any pictures of him leaving, but I think he left uh, that dinner tonight and was on his way to the airport to get back on Air Force One and head back to Washington. But it was a busy day. He met with the Prime Minister and the Liberal Cabinet, opposition leaders, a speech to Parliament, a press conference with the Prime Minister, dinner at the Canadian Aviation and Space Museum. Um, Lots of ground to cover, but some of the highlights, we talked about one of them last night. Um, It comes into effect in just a few hours. That is a change to the Safe Third Country Agreement, which which will now apply not just to migrants at official border uh, stations, but also anyone at unofficial ones or or irregular crossings, as they're called. That has to do with the very much publicized Roxham Road in Quebec, where there is a steady stream of people crossing in from America into Canada to claim refugee status. And under the third country agreement, that no longer, it, you know, it was a loophole in the agreement that's been that's been closed and closed quickly. It'll be closed as of uh, midnight tonight Eastern, so just in a in an hour's time or so. They talk energy transition, of course. The President Biden says his Inflation Reduction Act is the largest commitment to tackle climate change in history. And he says there's room for Canada in it for both electric-made vehicles in this country and critical minerals. And I believe we have an incredible opportunity to work together so Canada and the United States can source and supply here in North America everything we need for reliable and resilient supply chains. There is Joe Biden talking about uh, the energy transition. And, of course, he waded into uh, to the national pastime. You got a laugh on this one. Our labor unions cross borders. So do our sports leagues. Baseball, basketball, hockey. Listen to this, hockey. <laughs> I have to say, I like your teams except the Leafs. 
It turns out he's from, I mean, he's a Philadelphia Flyers fan. He always has been. His wife's from Philly. He likes all Philadelphia teams. And apparently the Leafs beat the Flyers back in January and therefore, but <laughs> that seems like a bit of a, bit, a bit of thin gruel. I wonder who, who wrote that into his speech because it seemed pretty, pretty deliberate. Uh, so lots to talk about, uh, both what happened with Joe Biden today and some other stuff. Brian Passifume is a parliamentary correspondent with the National Post in Ottawa. Brian, thank you for staying up late. Oh, no problem. Thank you. And, and nobody likes leaves, so don't be too offended. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah. I mean, talk, talk about, about an easy, talk about, uh, talk about an alley-oop for the, on that one. That was an easy one for the president. Um, it's always a big deal in Ottawa when this goes on. Um, what stood out for you today? I mean, I watched a lot of it. There wasn't a whole lot you could chew, it, chew on, but there were some. Yeah, it was. Uh, it's it's uh, the city's been a buzz for the past few days. Uh, Ottawa's uh, it's probably the most lively Ottawa's been in geez, a long time since uh, <laughs> the uh, president coming. Uh, yeah, as you mentioned off the top there, I think the most notable announcement was the expansion of the safe third party agreement. Uh, as you mentioned, the New Deal will uh, extend the agreement to cover the entirety of the Canada-U.S. land border, and it'll essentially shut down Roxham Road. Um, and it's. Uh, Everybody knows it's the uh, the infamous crossing on the New York uh, Quebec border. Uh, one of my colleagues actually spent a day down there uh, yeah. earlier this month uh, and came back with some really interesting stories about kind of the cottage industries that have kind of sprung up around the whole thing. But uh, yeah, the uh, the whole situation has become a huge irritant to the Trudeau Liberals. Uh, but the the plan uh, um, in exchange for closing it down, Canada is promising to take in an extra fifteen thousand migrants from North America, but only through legal channels. So anybody who right. crosses illegally or whatever would be turned back to the states. It was interesting because I mean, for a long time, it felt like that was an issue that the Americans just had no interest. I mean, it was just so low on their list of things to do that they had no interest in tackling it. And here we go. It turned out, in fact, they had kind of settled on this back in December. Back in December, apparently. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they, they, just, they kind of didn't finalize everything until pretty last minute, like just the past few few days or so. So, yeah, that's uh, that, that, that. It's definitely good news for. Uh, I guess it depends on your point of view, but uh, yeah, it's. Uh, I think that's what stuck out the most. Yeah, I, I think they were. Uh, I mean, Haiti came up as well. We're sending some money to the police. I know the Americans want us to do more. That's also also a migrant issue to some extent because there's huge numbers of Haitians fleeing that the violence in that country. A lot of them are ending up with the Ameri- at the southern U.S. border. Uh, so that's some of what of the fifteen thousand people we're taking in. That's part of it as well, a little bit. Uh, China was front and center today. I mean, it wasn't talked about a lot, but Michael Spavor and Michael Kovrig, you may recognize those names. They were the two Canadians held in China for more than a thousand days as retaliation for the arrest of Meng Wanzhou here. They were there, and uh, it was kind of a big deal, I thought. That was a, that was one of the big moments of the day when they got that standing ovation, just their presence. Yeah, they, they, haven't, they haven't made a whole lot of appearances uh, in public since they've, uh, since they've returned. They've, they've done next to no media interviews, except for one of them getting spotted in a barbershop a little bit after he came back to Canada. They pretty much heard neither hide nor hair of it, those two. So it's it's good to see them come up again. It's uh, them being there is definitely was definitely a sort of a, um, you know, a, was purposeful in, in Canada's struggles with China right now. I think that, uh, you know, it, uh, and I, I think the other, the other kind of um, you know, kick at China too, was you mentioned the, the critical mineral strategy. Um, right. You know, that's, um, that's a move to wean North America off of uh, minerals mined by China and Russia um, these are these are minerals that are vital to everything: electronics, electric car batteries, electric motors, pretty much everything that's kind of like sort of the, everything being fashioned in the new economy right now. So it's uh, yeah, it's definitely a win for us. Yeah, and certainly when he talks about self-reliant supply chains, that's that's China that he's talking about. Uh, Joe Biden was asked a, a little bit later because you couldn't help but see after watching the images of Vladimir Putin and President Xi Jinping of China in Moscow last week with those enormous flags which was strange uh, the juxtaposition today with having uh, joe biden and justin trudeau and then joe biden was asked about china and russia and here's what he had to say i've been hearing now for the past three months about china is going to provide significant weapons to russia and they're going to exp- well, i've been talking about that they haven't yet doesn't mean they won't but they haven't yet and if anything's happened the west has coalesced significantly more 
Joe Biden there. So, so, I mean, that was kind of the underlying thing in all this was there was a real, although they talked about Ukraine quite a bit, a lot of this was sort of unity, right? This was about Canada and America standing shoulder to shoulder, so to speak. Um, and as, you know, as democracies and the rules-based international order versus, you know, Russia, China and others who would have a different. Yeah, this, um, it, it was kind of a, this whole Canadian insecurity thing kicking in about, uh, you know, how Canada always feels like they're being hard done by or ignored by the U.S. So, yeah, if, if anything, this uh, this visit was just kind of a way to, uh, you know, just, uh, you know, remind Canada that, uh, you know, that, uh, you know, we matter to the U.S. and they love us, you know, and the, um, I think this is the first time since I think George W. Bush that a president has made a proper one-on-one state visit to Canada. Like, Trump never bothered and Obama only came here during the G whatever summits and uh, the North American leader summit in 2016. So yeah, the uh, Canada used to always be the U S president's first stop overseas, but that, uh, I guess those days are gone. Yeah. They, they can, they can go further afield now. (laughs) Yeah. Anything else stand out today? I'm trying to, the the Haiti issue uh, was interesting Mm -hmm. only because I know the Americans have been pushing for this. They've been pushing Canada to try to do something. First of all, politically, the, the Americans can't. There's a lot of history there. So Canada's mm-hmm. sort of by default the one country that could kind of go in and try to stabilize what is a very bad situation. Uh, we ended up uh, providing money for police, which Biden then said was he wasn't disappointed. That That's one thing. But it doesn't feel like it's going to solve the problems that are plaguing Port-au-Prince, at least right now. Yeah, I'm sure the U.S. would love to see Canadian boots on the ground in Haiti. But, you know, seriously, the, the Canadian forces have so much on their play right now these days without being embroiled in yet another commitment. Uh, you remember last year, uh, General Air, the chief of defense staff, warned that his forces were spread far too thin. And it's, it's no secret that our military is overworked and under-equipped. Uh, it's everything from Ukraine and even just helping out here locally at home with COVID, natural disasters and stuff, it, it's... You know, other than giving money, that's, that's pretty much the only thing we can do. The last thing our, our military is capable of right now is another foreign deployment. The difficult decision was on what we do with the Willow Project in Alaska. And the energy that is going to be produced there, estimated, would, would account to 1%, 1% of the total production of oil in the world. And so I thought it was a good, a, a, the better gamble... Yeah, I've covered a lot of these things. So it's always interesting what they don't talk about. So that's the president answering a question from a Canadian press reporter about why he approved uh, energy projects in Alaska after blocking the Keystone XL pipeline back in June of 2021. That was an interesting one because, again, Brian Brian Passifume is with us, National Post parliamentary correspondent. We're talking about Joe Biden's visit to Ottawa today. It's always interesting what they don't talk about. And if you were listening for anything about LNG or energy, you didn't hear much today. Yeah, these, these sorts of things always, there's always laundry lists people form in their head of what should, you know, what is and isn't important. But, there's, you know, he was only in town for a night. There's only so much that they could nail out. And, and to be totally honest, like the real work is done before these things ever happen. They just, you know, the president shows up, shakes some hands, and that's it. But, uh, you know, the, the people behind the scenes want to kind of make the real wheels and deals. But, uh, yeah, LNG and, um, yeah, definitely uh, Keystone uh, one is, um, I'm, Sure, I know a lot of people were hoping would uh, would at least make some uh, make some uh, make some splash. Yeah, he he didn't answer the question really. I mean, he, the, the question unfortunately was phrased in such a way that uh, he re- all he really had to do was explain why he approved the one in Alaska. So he didn't yeah. go into why why he had turfed uh, why he had shut down Keystone XL and and whether there was a contradiction there. Uh, we could change this a bit because I don't know where where Joe Biden stayed last night. I know when I was in London for the Queen's funeral, he stayed. There's a residence there uh, for that uh, as part of the American uh, embassy there. Or not the American embassy. There's a residence for the ambassador, and he stayed there. So we now know who stayed in the $6,000 a night hotel room that I, I mean, I saw the prime minister on the street along with all the other VIPs around Canada House there. But it was indeed the prime minister. Brian, I know you follow this stuff pretty closely. You've done some good reporting on the governor general's trips recently. Um, why did this take so long? I mean, everyone kind of knew it was the prime minister and Sophie who had stayed in that incredibly expensive suite. But here we are months later, six months later, and finally we find out. 
it, it's it's funny in the news biz we have this thing called the 5 p.m friday news dump where governments usually release news around that time embarrassing news that they ultimately believe splash and the pmo kind of did something simple yesterday that everybody That's on right. the hill was all a titter about the biden's visit yeah so they dropped possibly the least surprising news of the year that it was indeed the pm and his wife who stayed in the infamous river suite of the corinthian um, this is one of those stories that people love. Uh, this scoop was uh, unearthed by my pal Brian Lilly at the Toronto Sun. Uh, somebody in the, but the the most ridiculous part is how to the um, the ridiculous lengths they went to to conceal who stayed in the room. I got some documents through an access to information request a little while ago trying to figure out who stayed there, but. Um, yeah, it just a lot of the staffers in, in the emails that I got were just as flummoxed as the rest of us who stayed there. Um, it, there was a it was an email that said so and so stayed in the room, but of course the name was redacted. So you know <laughs> this is ridiculous how how the lengths they went to to try to you know keep was. keep this a secret. Now I, I was there for it, so, and and so I so there's a few caveats. I mean, a the the hotel they stayed in was walking distance to Canada House. Traffic was a mm-hmm. nightmare because of it, so it made sense for him to stay there. And of course, I, yeah, even uh, even we staying there, hotel prices were all astronomical. But six thousand dollars a night in the middle of a you know in the middle of an affordability crisis. You, you mean someone? Yeah. And I think it, I think it was the, the High Commission in England, in London, that booked it, right? But still, you'd have someone would have had to say, listen, there, there must be another. There must be another room. Well, there were, and um, yeah, and like this, the six thousand dollar room comes with a butler, uh, heated yeah. floors. Like it's definitely a value added stay if you're going to go for the Queen's funeral. You might as well go in style, I suppose. You wouldn't think so. I mean, I, my impression. I don't. We tried to find out where uh, the Australian leader uh, Albanese stayed, where Jacinta Ardern stayed. I, I could almost promise you that Jacinta Ardern did not stay in a six thousand dollar a night hotel room. She wouldn't know how know. She, she just like, she would buckle at it. She's gone now. But um, and then you've done some other great work on, on some governor general's trip, which I think led to them actually changing the rules on sort of just how money, how much money was being spent on these. Yeah, last year I wrote about the governor general's uh, junket to Expo 2020 in Dubai, where her and her 20 something guests in the government plane used ninety three thousand dollars in inflate catering costs on the government jet. Um, that was a. The one I wrote about uh, earlier this week was uh, the Governor General's first overseas trip, which was a trip in 2021 to open the Frankfurt Book Fair in Germany. Um, wow. In that case, her and her entourage spent over $100,000 in airplane meals. Now, keep in mind, the Dubai, the, you know, the, this, this Dubai trip was a week long and included stops all over the Middle East. This trip, Frankfurt, was a trip from Ottawa to Frankfurt. You know, very few legs, and, and they still spend all this money on the food and it's it was uh you know it was it was it was surprising to say the least yeah and again going back to the to the hotel room i just i saw it last night and it came out you know there it was canadian i think they released it right they announced they they basically released the information and i thought here we are thursday night before biden is arriving and here it comes here comes the news that no one's going to talk about at least i mean a few people did but yeah i mean these are the sorts of stories people get upset when when people talk about spending all the time but there's certain there are certain times when, when everyone's living through an affordability crisis, there are certain things. You've got to watch the optics, right? you just got to watch the optics. Exactly. And it, after my, my stories about the Dubai trip, you know, they, they, they came forward and they, they put measures in place, like no more flower arrangements for the airplanes, uh, no more meal choices, because that was the big thing is that, uh, you know, they were double storing all the meals. So if they had like, you know, 30 people on the plane that have to stock 60 meals because they wanted to give everybody a choice. Um, you know, it, less of a case of a Salisbury steak, but the Dubai trip, they had things like beef Wellington and, and, beef, and beef Carpaccio and all these expensive foods. And I'm just envisioning all this beef Wellington getting thrown out because people wanted the people wanted a lamb. Right. Brian, thank you so much for staying up late. Have a nice weekend. You too. Take care. Thanks. Anytime. This is about why we like the news that we like. And why we tend to gravitate towards uh, bad news, even though we all say we would like to be uplifted or see some positive stuff. Before I do that, though, I'm going to share something with you because it struck me today as I was looking around at all that was going on in Ottawa. I used to cover a lot of those kind of galas over the years as well. And as I was saying uh, before uh, the news, I was always asked, what did they have for dinner? Because there was a gala tonight. There was a big dinner at the Aviation Museum in Ottawa. And I'd always be asked like two or three questions, you know, what do they have for dinner? If it was the royal family, what were they wearing, specifically Kate? Uh, 
you know, what are they wearing? And these are all things that I had to learn to pay attention to. Because if you go, I was a sort of a crime reporter growing up uh, when I first started out in Montreal and Toronto. So I always forgot to look for some of those details. So I know better now. I know better now. So here, a one a one time only performance for you. What they ate for dinner tonight with Joe Biden in town. The chef was from Saskatoon, Kenton Lear, uh, and the National Arts Center catering team took care of it. The entree was cedar salt and seaweed crusted, rare seared, East Coast yellowfin tuna, white beet hummus, white bean hummus rather, cucumber, uh, bitter greens, flaxseed cracker, and lemon parsley emulsion. I, I, I picture that, I'd imagine it was pretty small. It sounds a bit bite-sized. Uh, dinner was Alberta beef braised short rib, butternut squash puree, and Yukon gold potato pavé, wildflower honey roasted carrots, and fine green beans, Peely Island Cabernet Sauvignon Jus. That sounds pretty good. Dessert, wild blueberry and Quebec maple mousse cake. Wild blueberry and Quebec maple mousse cake. Screech rum caramel and sweet grass meringue with fresh berries. Well, that all sounds pretty deep. I mean, they covered the entire country there, didn't they? From Peely Island, which is the southernmost point in the country, by the way, uh, to Quebec. And uh, the Screech, of course, is from Newfoundland. And yeah, everything there. East Coast yellowfin tuna, Alberta beef, Yukon potatoes. They had it all. There you go. So a one-time only uh, performance for you of what I used to have to do, which was memorize menus so people would know if there was something interesting to talk about in there. So let's talk about the news. Why is it that, um, you know, the old term in news was always, if it bleeds, it leads, which is, you know, a bit trite. That's not actually true. Uh, weather. Weather. A, a big storm will always knock everything else off a newscast, if you've ever noticed. Um but there is always a sense in newsroom that good news needs to be novel and bad news just to be, needs to be bad, that readers, viewers, listeners say they want more uplifting stories, but tend to remember and react more to negative stuff. Who could encapsulate that better than one of my favorites from The Simpsons, Kent Brockman? Action News. news. Last place an impressionable kid can go for TV violence. Now, here's your action anchor, Kent Brockman. Hello, I'm Kent Brockman. Our top stories tonight, a tremendous explosion in the price of lumber. President Reagan dies. His hair, says Gary Trudeau in his new musical comedy review. But first, let's check the death count from the killer storm bearing down on us like a shotgun full of snow. Well, Kent, as of now, the death count is zero, but it is ready to shoot right up. Oh, my God. <laughs> there you have it. I mean, that's 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 an exaggeration. But, yeah, there you have it. Well, it turns out our proclivity our tendency to like or at least be attracted to bad news isn't just sort of, you know, it's not gut instinct, it's science. In one study, researchers found that negative news provoked stronger physiological reactions and garnered more attention than positive or neutral news on average. Now, it's not all bad news if you like good news. There is good news for those of you who prefer good news. Uh, it's not always the case, and there is a trend towards liking more positive stories, um, and it's showing some encouraging signs these days. And part of that's just all the fragmentation of media and so on that uh, we're able to kind of get away, dive away and see more positive stuff. But it is an interesting, and it's, it's an interesting phenomenon. And to explain it is one of those researchers who has looked into it uh, so deeply, looked into the science of it. Stuart Soroka is a professor of communication and political science at the University of Southern California, UCLA. And he joins me now. Uh, Stuart, thank you. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. This is this is an interesting one because anyone who's worked in the news for a long time understands sort of inherently that bad news is gobbled up at a different pace and in a different way than good news. Although anytime you ever even speak to family members, they ask you, why don't you do more positive stuff? Why is the news always so depressing? You looked into this. Why is it? I mean, I think that the human prioritization of negative content has kind of an evolutionary basis. That is, in order to survive, mammals developed brains that prioritize negative information over positive information. And that's why when we play economics games with, uh, with monkeys or pigs, like basic economics games with monkeys or pigs, we see exactly the same kind of bias. Negative information uh, gets more attention than positive information because the consequences of negative information tend to outweigh the benefits of positive information. The I mean, best thing that can happen is you get more food. The worst thing that can happen is you're dead. And dead clearly is worse. 
It's a bit of a chicken and an egg argument, though, that when it comes to what we now understand as sort of the modern news delivery, whether it be newscasts, which are a bit, uh, you know, sort of fading a little bit, but social media, all the different ways we consume information, uh, whether we get more negative news because we like it or we're provided more negative news because people delivering it know we like it. Uh, But you actually looked into this scientifically and found that indeed we even react differently physiologically we react differently to to negative news versus positive news yeah absolutely and that that, that appears to be true across the 17 countries in which we uh, conducted wow. those experiments too so we're capturing heart rate and skin conductance as people watch television news and finding consistently around the world in different cultures humans are responding um, affectively, like physiologically, more strongly to negative content than to positive content, which is what we would expect if that bias had a kind of evolutionary source, that we should see it all over the place. It makes sense that it would be the same regardless of, regardless of, and that would, I imagine, apply to countries that have different setups for news delivery too, right? From public broadcasters like the BBC to places like America, where it's a bit different. Yeah, that I mean, this appears to be true. I mean, nobody, I, I think people making evolutionary arguments generally, or like um, biological arguments like this, wouldn't argue that biology is completely independent from context, right? Right. So the way in which our negativity biases work fluctuates based on our n- national context or news context. And that can mean the kind of new system you have, but it can also just mean like whether your day went well or not well. That was also information you were consuming during the day. And the yeah. degree to which you're prioritizing negative news might have something to do with just like how your lunch went or whether your day at work was pleasant or unpleasant. So that listeners get a, a clear picture because it's it's a you chose some fascinating stories. And I think I saw most of the, most of these stories when they were out because I was living uh, in the UK. But you used BBC World News stories, right? Um, we did to to test this, and you picked some pretty interesting ones to try to find the difference because the ones you picked that were positive are stories you would think that would attract a lot of views, and I think people probably like them as well. But the negative stories that you chose did get a bigger response. So what were the stories that you picked and how did people react to them? So story choice was a little difficult because what we're trying to do is find stories that are foreign stories in almost every country in which we're running the experiment. So we don't want to have a story that's about Italy or about Britain or about Canada or about the U.S. And and, and that meant made story selection a little bit difficult. Uh, Positive stories... The national context mattered a little bit less. So like a kid who makes stop action movies using Lego pieces, for instance, is a good example of a positive story. A negative story would be a town burning down in Peru, for instance, Peru being a country that we were not uh, running a study in. So these are sort of random good news stories and random bad news stories where people wouldn't necessarily have any preconceived notion about what they're about before clicking on them or looking at them or wanting to look at them. That's exactly the idea. And and also they're they're old enough that for the most part, people won't remember them. Like there's a little bit of distance between um, between when the stories were aired and when we're running the experiment. So we're not working with common stories that people have already been exposed to, at least in the recent past. We're very worried about what we would call pretreatment effects. The idea right. that somebody gets into your experiment and has just seen the thing that you're presenting to them. Yeah, interesting how that works because it is tough to it is tough to figure this out because when people self-report, they tend to self-report that they like good news generally, not always, but they tend to lean towards "I like good news" more than your research suggests. Well, so an interesting point on that: we ran an experiment, uh, a separate experiment, in which we started by asking people. Uh, questions about their preferences for news, and including whether they thought the news should be more positive. And then we had them sit down in front of a screen. And in in order to make them think we weren't monitoring what they were clicking on, we said, you know, we're going to show you a video and it requires some eye tracking. And in order to set up the eye tracking, we just need you to read the news a little bit. Here's recent news, read whatever you want. And and afterwards, we're going to, we're going to do eye tracking with the video. People then made their news selection choices without knowing that we were, we were monitoring them. And the news they select is completely not correlated with their desire for more positive news. That is to say, regardless of whether you said you wanted the news to be more positive, you still clicked on the negative stuff. And you explained what it says about what the long history of this is when it comes to human nature and how we've evolved. 
part of it must be too i mean to some extent we're also we're also conditioned in a way to read i mean there, that negativity bias kind of exists not only for those consuming it but those providing the news as well there's a whole format in the way news is written negative news that really captures the imagination pretty quickly right sort of presents presents an issue that's controversial the, the, you know the beginning of it usually says something that grabs you like you need to know this because it's important versus you know the happy news stories you know abba had a long and beautiful career which doesn't really grab you the same way it's kind of it it, it, it sent, i sense the system could be a bit gamed versus on negative on the negative side as well well, I mean, that's an interesting point. I think that, I mean, a lot of human designed institutions were created to process information in roughly the same way as the human brain. Right. So when we look at government institutions and the role of the opposition, for instance, in a parliamentary system, that's all about error correction, right? Set up a government and then constant error monitoring. And when we think about the way media are talked about at the time at which we are setting up large scale democracies, it's exactly the same way. This kind of media as a fourth estate media as a kind of error monitoring system is exactly what we would expect or, or what we would want of media, rather, if we wanted media to behave with the same kind of negativity biases that we see in the human brain. So part of the reason why media process information in the way they do is because we set them up that way. We set them up to mimic the way in which we think. Stuart Soroka is a professor of communication and political science at UCLA. We're talking about negativity bias in news, why it is that we like, uh, that we tend to say we want to see good news and we tend to drift towards bad news. Even physiologically, we react differently to bad news. We tend to be more absorbed in it. Uh, but Stuart, there was some good news for those who say they want to see more good news. It seems like the negativity bias may have uh, plateaued a bit and that the, there is more room now for what we would call good news. And, and and I guess, how do you define it? I mean, I think the, the way I would describe that is that uh, it's not that human brains have changed, or our interest in, or our, like, on average, negativity bias has changed. But even though on average, humans exhibit a negativity bias, there is at any given moment, a sizable minority, let's say, of people who are interested in positive news, just like we can each think of this, like at the individual level, we sometimes, like I sometimes just want to, I'll read the news, I'll start at the top. And sometimes I would like, I seek out something that's a little more positive. Yep. And that's now much easier to do in the kind of high choice online media environment in which we exist. We're not watching just a half hour newscast and we have to watch what's on that half hour newscast. And the only other choices for news are two other half hour newscasts. Right. We are clicking on whatever we want, whenever we want. And that just changes our ability to select into positive news anytime. Because we do see more and more, we at least we read more and more people sort of tuning out of what would be considered the way news has always been built, tuning out of it because it is too negative and then sort of retreating to, you know, to, to different stuff online because, oh, turning on the news is, 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 is depressing to be, to use, to use the term incorrectly. Um, but we see that. And we, we, we hear that, that especially during the pandemic, that people felt like it was just all a bit much. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that, I think that we can see the change in our online news consumption behavior in two ways, right? One is when we go to a web, a news website, there's news presented to us and we can select the negative stuff or, and that, that's getting, too much, we can select positive things there, but we also can change platforms entirely, right? You can go on to a, uh, the Globe and Mail website and feel like that's just too much bad news for you. And so you open up Instagram and where Instagram is the equivalent of, you know, that last story in a half hour newscast that's traditionally positive, like the kind of recovery story right. at the end of a half hour newscast. Like you can have that recovery story anytime. You can look at, you can get halfway into a bad news story and decide you need 20 minutes of kitty cat pictures and do that. I mean, that just fundamentally changes the way in which we consume news and, and I think can fundamentally change the way in which news producers produce news as well. Because yeah, they're no longer producing just for the average, for the average negativity biased consumer. They can produce positive news and set it out there and people can consume it when they like. Yeah, it doesn't have to be linear, right? The way it used to work with sort of bad news, bad news, something quirky, something funny at the end, right? We can we can yeah. build it differently. In, in, in that sense, when you when you look ahead to the kind of research that you'll be doing, be doing, 
I guess the change of the media landscape and the way we consume information will also have some sort of impact on this stuff as well, because you're right, we don't have to, we're not confined to consuming information in a way that's dictated to us anymore. And that may change the way negativity bias works to us to some extent. I think it unquestionably will. The, the, not only because all news is available as a news of all different valences can be made available and be selected at any given point in time, but because we increasingly consume information in smaller and smaller pieces in the way in TikTok videos, for instance. Right. Uh, and, and the way in which we experience negative and positive content is quite different when we're experiencing it mixed up in 15 second clips as opposed to uh, mixed up over like seven stories in a half hour period. I guess the challenge then becomes if you do have information that's important to impart, say during a pandemic, it becomes tougher and tougher to figure out where and how to impart it. It used to be that you knew it was important. It was clearly sort of appealed to the negativity bias because there was some fear involved in it. Like a, a pandemic is in of itself something that would appeal to negativity bias. But as everything fragments it becomes harder and harder to know where that information should be should be presented and, and consumed i think that's probably true I, I mean i think on the production side this makes things a little more complicated although it still is the case that on average humans exhibit a negativity bias and on average when presented with a set of news stories people will select the most sensational most negative story so i think it's still possible to reach a broad audience with a negative piece of information, it's just not, maybe not quite as broad an audience. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. Uh, interesting how our, our, our you know, I mean, I, I consume a ton of news and you're right. The first thing you look at is something is something that's novel and usually something that's negative. Stuart Soroka, thank you so much. Thank you. 